Welcome to Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. I'm your host, Rob Stinnett, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Arherman. Hey, Andrew, what is up? Oh, what's up, Rob? What's up, everyone who is tuning in and listening? If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, if this is your not first time, uh, you should subscribe if you haven't already. Subscribe, rate, review. We love uh, hearing what you guys have to say. Beautiful. Yeah, please do that. Share the word and subscribe. We've met all sorts of new listeners, and we also have a Facebook group um, that we've started just as another place to talk about movies. And so if you're lonely and don't have friends or if you like to like procrastinate at your job um, or whatever, you know, like some people at our group even have friends. And so no matter who you are, come to our group, check it out. It's actually a lot of fun, a good place to talk about movies. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. But we have a special show today. We are going to have my good friend Patton Dodd on the show. Patton, what's up, man? How you doing? What's up, Rob? What's up, Andrew? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about movies with two of you. It's so awesome to have you here, Patton. And um, we were talking about all sorts of movies that we would want to discuss. I was texting you about like Social Network or Pulp Fiction or No Country for Old Men. We were actually really close to doing an episode about No Country for Old Men. Like that was like locked in. And then out of nowhere, this Dark Horse film, Coda, this film that was made on a super small budget that goes and wins the best picture, goes, and we decided, okay, we have to talk about this movie. And so here we are. We're here today talking about Coda. You guys ready for this? Oh, I'm excited. All right. Well, my opening question is this, and I know everyone's tired of talking about this, but was Will Smith the best thing to happen to Coda or the worst thing to happen to Coda? What I mean about it is this. I think so many times when a movie wins Best Picture, almost immediately there's a backlash. There's like, oh, that's not really the Best Picture. Actually, this was the Best Picture. And there's just kind of this angry backlash. But that didn't happen with Coda at all. In fact, like, Coda almost was like buried deep down there. No one was really talking about Coda because Will Smith, Chris Rock, all of that like gained up all the attention. So I'm curious from you guys, like, is that a good thing or a bad thing for Coda? I feel like ultimately it's going to be a bad thing because the expression like all press is good press, I really do think is true when it comes to like Oscar backlash. When things win that people don't think should win, then you get think pieces written about it and it stays in the zeitgeist for a while. And the argument makes people say, well, well, I should check it out and see if I agree. Right. Like when Hurt Locker beat Avatar. Right. Like not many people had seen the Hurt Locker, but it beating Avatar, even though people like could have been upset or not upset. And there's a whole debate about that way back in like 2010 or whenever that happened. Right. Like then people go watch the Hurt Locker. And so the backlash creates conversation. And so I think it ends up actually being good when it comes to smaller films um, that win and are sort of surprise wins. And uh, this didn't get all that buzz. It didn't get all that extra words written about it. Um, and it may have not gotten the bump that most small best pictures would have gotten. Okay, so Andrews, bad thing for Coda. Pat, where do you <laughs> land on this? Very good thing for Coda. I think I was bracing for the Coda backlash. And I think that uh, the Will Smith slap has been bad for all kinds of news. It's been bad for Ukraine. It's been bad for talking about, you know, I don't know, economic inequality in the US. It's been bad for maybe the midterms and politicians that want attention because Will Smith's slap has eaten the news for about seven days now. It's still kind of eating the news a little bit, chomping at it uh, in bits and bites. Um, and I think that, yeah, that backlash definitely would have happened with Coda. Coda is like a backlash ready best picture winner because it was small, because it has been accused of being sentimental because it doesn't seem like it's artistically forward and all kinds of things I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, and I think that would have been hard on Coda this week. And I think that Coda is a movie that whose success will be driven by word of mouth. And I feel like a week of no like kind of zeitgeist pressure pushing down on that word of mouth and saying, actually, this movie isn't all that good. It's probably good for the word of mouth campaign that Coda is hopefully experiencing right now. Uh, I think that's really interesting, Patton. In fact, you guys have a little bit of time because I want to read a list to you. Are you ready for this list? Go for sure. it. What, what, what would this podcast be without a Rob Stennett list? Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read every best picture since 1990. And here's my question that I want to ask you while I'm reading this list, which is how many of these were arguably the best picture that year that they won best picture? Okay, so I'm without commentary. 
I'm just going to read you every single best picture since 1990. So here we go. 1990, Driving Miss Daisy. 1991, Dances with Wolves. 1992, The Silence of the Lambs. 1993, Unforgiven. 1994, Schindler's List. 1995, Forrest Gump. 1996, Braveheart. 1997, The English Patient. 1998, Titanic. Shout out to Titanic. 1999, Shakespeare in Love. 2000, American Beauty. 2001, Gladiator. 2002, A Beautiful Mind. 2003, Chicago. 2004, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. 2005, Million Dollar Baby. 2006, Crash. 2007, The Departed. 2008, No Country for Old Men. 2009, Slumdog Millionaire. 2010, The Hurt Locker. 2011, man, this, speech, this, this thing is long. 2011, The King's Speech. 2012, The Artist. 2013, Argo. 2014, 12 Years a Slave. 2015, Birdman. 2016, Spotlight. 2017, Moonlight. 2018, The Shape of Water. 2019, Green Book. 2020, Parasite. 2021, Nomadland. 2022, Coda. How many of those movies were the best picture when they won? Like, when I read that list, like, what's your reaction to that list? I counted 18 that were not the best picture while you were reading it off. Out of what? Is that 30 years? 32 years? Yeah, that's like 32 years. I counted. I just started counting in the negative. Like, when you said one that I was thinking, I don't think I should have won that year, I lifted up a finger and I got to 18. That's not a very good record. It's, you know, it's like a good baseball average, but it's not a good record for the Oscars. And so many of those films you like viscerally react to, right? Like when I'm reading Dances with Wolves, when I'm saying The King's Speech, when I'm saying, you know, so many of these movies, when I'm saying Crash, I'm like, oh, like I cringe a little bit. Sorry right. to any Crash fans on the podcast, but I cringe a little bit. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, man. And so, so many of these movies, they're le- like Crash's legacy now is garbage. You know, The King's Speech, which I actually think The King's Speech is a nice little movie, but it's you like roll your eyes at it. You're like, oh, my gosh. And so, so many of these movies... Shakespeare in Love, which is actually a movie that I liked um, and had a lot of fun watching and I think is a smart movie. But all that is is just like Shakespeare in Love, not better than Saving Private Ryan, right? Like that's that's the legacy. That's all we think about. So, so many of these movies, they just get trounced upon because of the backlash. And so I think that actually does help Coda. I mean, I think it's good in the short term for Coda that a lot of attention has been driven away from it. And then we'll see. I mean, Oscars can't be evaluated really in the moment anyway. It takes a year or five or 10 um, to look back and realize, you know what? American Beauty kind of sucked. But like, if you don't, <laughs> in the moment, you might not think that. Um, so uh, let's check in in a year or three from now and see how we feel about Coda. The one thing I think is interesting when I was looking at this list is you can sort of see like, patterns in tone across the years and what kinds of movies the academy seems to really be like in love with over what is this 30 years yeah about 30 years Uh, from about 2005 to 2010 it's like everything is super depressing like if you are a happy movie get out of here and then for about the last five years, like you have to be a pretty small movie in order to win. If you have like a budget of any kind, you're not going to be best picture. Yeah, that's a good point. Like the, what was the last big picture that won? Like Argo, maybe like Argo, um, 12 Years a Slave, kind of, but not really. Yeah, I mean, I would not call 12 Years a Slave like a juggernaut. Like it's not like Titanic. I mean, it's, it's not even like Argo and the fact that there's no major leading people or. The question for Coda is, will it be closer to Moonlight or The Artist in the terms of the way that it's thought about two or three years from now? It'll probably be closer to The Artist. Maybe we'll get into this more later. But like, I think it's um, I think it's artistic breakthroughs, if they exist, are subtle. I don't know. It might be a little bit of a strange movie. I I look forward to digging into this more with you guys, because I think it. I'm not sure that it's either feast or foul when it comes to this question. Well, you can't talk about its win without talking about what it's up against. So let me ask you guys this. Should Coda have won Best Picture? Is this a crime and an injustice? Andrew and I briefly talked about this in the Instant Reaction podcast, but I'm interested from you, Patton. Like, should it have won Best Picture? I was rooting for Coda, and so I think the Academy got it right. I don't think this is the, uh, the year's best film artistically, but I think it's a good Best Picture Oscar winner. And I do think there's a difference, which is, I think, what we're talking about here. I mean, Dune, Licorice Pizza, Drive My Car, and West Side Story are all more ambitious and artistic movies. And any of those pictures wins Best Picture. And this is a year where you can feel like the Academy gave it to a movie that is going to stand the test of time 
artistically, but I was rooting for Coda with my heart. It's the only one of those movies that I've mentioned. I love everyone, every movie that I just mentioned, but Coda is the only one that I've seen multiple times already. I've seen it four times. I don't think it's the best movie of the bunch, but I do think it's a good best picture winner. And, you know, there is often a difference between what is the best movie of the year and what won best picture. And this movie, you know, it makes you feel great. I've watched it with my family twice and on my own. You laugh, you cry, and it tells a universal story with deaf people at the center. And I think that's a hard, you know, set of things to pull off. And so, yes, I think this is the best picture winner of last year. That's so fascinating to me, what you just said there, Patton, about the best picture winner isn't necessarily the best movie of the year and that there is a difference. Because in my mind, there isn't. Like, the best picture should be the best movie of the year, which is to me what makes Coda so odd. I watched it for the first time after the Oscars. If you listen to our Oscar podcast, you'll note that I had nothing to say about it as I had not seen it. It's the bar and, level as you're starting to watch it for the first time. If you had seen it six months ago, you might have had a different response to it, right? That is very probably true. Um, yeah, because I'm saying, okay, is this the best movie of the year or not? And I think that shaded my picture of it a little bit, but like, I, I honestly did love it when I watched it. It's a wonderful story. It's very sweet. But uh, what you were talking about, about like sort of a, taking an artistic step forward, it's interesting that it was only nominated in three categories. It won all of them, but it was not nominated in so many of the categories, right, that right. you're used to seeing a best picture nominated in, including director. So it seems odd to say that all these movies that had incredible craft, specifically like Dune, which I don't know that I would argue that was the best picture of the year. I might. Uh, I think it's between Dune and West Side Story. And I think the filmmaking that is on display and the storytelling that's on display is so elevated in those films that both of those are really the best movie of the year. And so I'm curious, Patton, when you say the best movie of the year is different from best picture, what is your definition of best picture and that's not like a fight like i'm actually curious like what in your mind are you voting for when you're rooting for a best picture i i think that i'm often rooting for a losing film when i'm rooting for best <laughs> because most of my favorites don't win i mean you know again it's telling rob reads 32 or whatever best picture winners 18 of them at least by my count um don't strike me as being worthy of that reward um and so i think i've just come to terms with that over the course of my life, that the best, what the Oscars are for is not rewarding artistic achievement. Therefore, acknowledging how a certain, I don't know, fairly representative body of people feel about a group of movies that came out in the same calendar year. Yeah. And it's ramming to me. Like, you know, movies like A Beautiful Mind, seriously, even American Beauty, which seems really interesting for about nine months and then on rewatch you're like ah this movie's so thin you know the artist i mean the bunch a bunch of the movies that rob read off just you know have not stood the test of time we don't talk about them anymore they don't you know no one refers to them they might be some people's favorite movies but no one refers to them when you're thinking about what is cinema what is like you know what is cinema doing artistically um the oscars i just don't think have a very good you know record it's not like a team winning the nba championship we are like, oh, that team achieved great basketball. Movies don't really mm -hmm. work that way. It's more of a popularity contest than it is, you know, a reward for actual artistic achievement. And well, I just, and he, here's the thing. Part of it is it's one thing for me to read this massive list and boom, 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 movie, movie, movie. But what you have to realize is like what's happening in the moment that that movie comes out. The year that Shakespeare in Love comes out, there's Thin Red Line. There's been like... Platoon is one best picture. There's been like English Patient one the year before, all these heavy dramas. So it's like, hey, let's reward it to a lighthearted comedy. It's almost a response to what happened the year before, often is what wins best picture. And so that's part of it. And even in Coda, like the reason I think Coda won is because we've had such a hard couple of years. It was just like every one of these movies that are like what we say the best, like Dune is a tough watch. It's a tough, tough hang. It takes a lot of focus. Licorice Pizza is a bizarre, like, kind of character study and that sort of stuff that you have to jump into. Drive My Car is, like, so heavy, so intense. And then Coda is just, like, hanging out with sunshine, man. It's like you laugh, you like these people, you feel good. And I think people did vote with their feelings this time. I think that is part of what happened. And even Power of the Dog, which was the consensus number one, like, until, what, two, three weeks ago? 
like that's kind of the opposite of Coda, where it's like this is a heavy film that's really slow moving that takes a lot of thinking, you know. And so I think that's what people were reacting to as well. So these are all the factors that happen with the best picture. And I think another factor that um, will be dwelt upon, this might have been in think pieces this week if had the slap not happened, is that isn't this the first best picture winner from a streamer? Yes, it is. It's so telling because Coda is perfect for watching on your couch. It would be great, I think, on a big screen, but I think that it really is satisfying on your couch in a way that Dune is not even the power of the dog. Like it needs a big canvas, I think, for it to work as well as it can. And Coda, I don't know, it's fitting to me that it won for 2021, the end of the second year of a global pandemic um, that we're starting to move away from. This feels like a pandemic movie. Like this feels like a movie that captures what it was like to, to every now and then find a really satisfying viewing experience from your home with your family. I love that. That's that's true. I think a lot of the other m- movies that I'm feeling were like, oh, this is a better cinematic experience. Yeah, I saw all of those in movie theaters and was encouraging people to see them in movie theaters because I'm like, this won't be as good on, on your couch. But I watched Coda on my iPad in bed and it was wonderful. Right, exactly. So I'm curious about this, you know, like if the slap doesn't happen and all the pushback pieces that we think probably would have happened had taken place. I think one of the big center talking points would have been sentimentality and um, how sentimental Coda was versus like more dark, angsty films like A Drive My Car um, or even Power of the Dog. Do darker films get more respect than sentimental films? And should they get more respect than sentimental films? They do and they should. And so like I am a proponent of dark, angsty films. In fact, I am against sentimentality because I have I've loved Coda since the first moment I saw it. It has bothered me that it is being associated with sentimentality. Um, sentimentality is unearned emotion. And I was thinking about this the other day because Oscar Wilde has this famous definition of sentimentality, which is that it is the luxury of an emotion without paying for it. It's unearned. So often people think of it as like excessive emotion. It's just too much. We have a lot of unearned emotion in my house right now because of Olivia Rodrigo songs, which I know is an old band complaint about teenage music, but it's just a, almost a chemical <laughs> amount of feeling that is coming at you through the speakers. That is sentimentality. And I think that kind of sentimentality is always bad in art. It's emotion that is thin and dishonest and also over the top. And in movies, you see it when a movie is trying to make you feel a certain way without earning it through storytelling. It's using music or maybe language or maybe an amazing actor or visuals, but without having told you a story that has earned that emotion. And Rob, you know mm-hmm. that I have examples of movies that have done this that I have before. But I think there's a difference between sentimentality and another concept, which is romance. And I don't mean romance as in love, but as, as in kind of an idyllic view. Like when you say someone has a romantic view of like 1950s America, sure. you're talking about them idealizing that time. I think this movie gets closer to romance. It romances perhaps the idea of family. It might romance the relationship between hearing and deaf culture in ways that are problematic. It romances the idea of uh, coming of age as we see a young girl coming of age and and finding her voice and who she's going to be. It romances the idea of letting go, you know, a family letting go of the oldest daughter, the oldest child. And I think it does all that really well without ever tipping off into sentimentality. And that's kind of a judgment call. But to me, this movie is not sentimental. To me, this movie is romantic about the things I just mentioned. And it achieves that romance through really careful and pretty subtle storytelling. I love that. Andrew, any response to that? I think Patton pretty much summed it up. I think we may differ in moments that we think actually paid off uh, the earned emotion. I feel like some of it probably was sentimental in certain ways. Things didn't feel completely earned to me all of the time. But I do think that the stakes in this are pretty low. Rob, you, you and I talked about this in the Oscars podcast about like the overall stakes are, does this girl go to college, right? Like we're not trying to save the world or like no one's going to die. Um, the earth isn't going to explode. War's not happening, right? Like it's pretty low stakes and it's just for like a small group of people. And so you can ride those emotional up and downs for what it means for an individual to come of age, to create an adult relationship with their family. It's sort of smaller and intimate. And most of those moments I do think really are earned in a way that aren't sentimental um, with the ex- exception of, I think, some of the singing stuff. So for me, I think like really good points from both of you. The reason this movie pops and the reason this movie like kind of works for me is because of 
the fact that it's dealing with a family who is deaf and three of the members are deaf and one of the members isn't. And so if it was just, I mean, I know this is the whole point of the story, but if you take that out of the story, if this was just a film about a girl and maybe, I, I don't know, whatever, the dad has a drinking problem or there's all sorts of other things that could have been the vice that it's dealing with and it's the exact same story and that's what it is, I am out. I am rolling my eyes in this movie. I'm whatever else. But because it's such um, a powerful telling and the use of music and a family who can't hear and all these sort of really smart ways that they could have... I mean, I think the sentimentality trap was everywhere for this movie, that they could fall off the cliff and I would just be rolling my eyes and like, oh my gosh, I'm in a Lifetime movie. And so I think it was everywhere. And the fact that it never did, or at least for me, like really kind of walk that tightrope where I'm like, oh, this really has something to say. It really is interesting storytelling. And to your point, Patton, it's not cheap or unearned, but these are like fleshed out characters with real problems who are human beings. Um, That's what made it work for me. I think what you just said there, Rob, about the characters being fleshed out, I think that's absolutely what steers it back from the edge of being sentimental. Because I was thinking about basically all of the characters and nobody at the end of the movie is painted as like all good or all bad. Basically, like they're all really kind of in the middle, right? Like there's no giant apology scene or anything like everyone just kind of has all their flaws and they navigate them and you see people in different light throughout the movie. Right. Um, And all of that complexity of all those people just kind of stays and steers through the movie together without there being any big sort of, oh, we misunderstood each other. Now we're actually all wonderful and shiny. That's never where this goes. Yeah, often in sentimental movies, we have a central character who's changed we're rooting for. And I feel like all the characters in this movie, I think this movie is very well written in the sense that, as you said, uh, Rob, these characters are fleshed out and most of them have arcs. You know, we see the brother go through an arc. We know what he wants. We know what he's aiming for. We see that for the father and the mother as well, um, even for Bernardo, which who, who might be um the kind of the thinnest character here even him we we learn a little bit about his backstory and um why he's situated the way that he is and they all go through some kind of change and i think that's that's a credit to the writing and i also think that um andrew was talking about the stakes i actually think that some of the stakes in this movie are like they are they feel low but this family is living at the edge of poverty and they work for an industry that is really threatened by, you know, by big powers, the federal powers and perhaps, you know, big fishing, whatever that might look like. This family and this community of Gloucester and Massachusetts are not going to make it financially. And then on top of that, you have, I guess, the central tension is around Ruby's decision of whether to stay or go, her sense of responsibility to the family. But all that is layered over the kind of social stakes that we um, come to know over the course of the movie. And I think that that helps it all register in a way that feels true. I'm going to break some news, which is I'm a sci-fi nerd. I watch a lot of sci-fi movies and um, stakes in those movies are really high. It's like aliens are coming or the world's going to be blown up and that sort of stuff. But mostly it's just entertainment. Like, I don't feel the stakes in those movies. It's just like, okay, like Manhattan's blowing up and it's fine. In this movie, like, I actually feel the stakes. I'm like, oh my gosh, is she going to get up on stage and embarrass herself? Is she going to, like reject her brother does her father know like how to handle this right like because the stakes are so low but i identify with them i'm like i'm a dad and i know what it means to like kind of get in those heated arguments with your daughter and like not win or not have her understand what you're trying to say and so i think that's what's so impressive about this movie is even though the stakes are low they feel real and i get it and so it feels so much more powerful to me than probably 90 percent of the movies that i watch And I think when we say low stakes, I think it's low stakes in comparison to so much of what we watch in storytelling right now, because like you just said, Patton, the the stakes are actually pretty high for real life, right? Like living on the edge of poverty is actually incredibly high stakes. But for a movie that feels like, eh, you know, (laughs) like we're not going to lose, you know, 40,000 people to a bomb, like whatever. They're relatable, normal stakes. And so that feels, I guess, like low in comparison, but it, it pulls you in. You can't turn off your brain because you actually start relating to them because it feels like something that you've been through or really close to being through, you know? Yeah. Okay, so I want to get into the scenes now. And so let's talk about the movie itself. Um, what's the most meaningful scene? 
Man, this is a tough one for me because I feel like there are half a dozen that I could choose. I think that most people would talk about the scene. In fact, critics that I've read have talked about the scene of Bernardo getting him getting Ruby to scream is a really important moment. The story in, in some ways is just about her finding her voice, knowing right. who she is and knowing what she has to say. And um, that scene where they're at his house and he is getting her to you know sing from her gut, basically, is really crucial. The one, though, that I always think of when I think about this movie is the Berkeley audition, which is maybe the emotional climax of the film, although there's probably a few emotional climaxes at the end uh, that we can get to. But the Berkeley audition, when her family comes into the room and sees her, they sit in the balcony and she makes the decision, it seems on the fly, to incorporate signing and singing to them. I mean, that scene is up there with, you know, movie scenes that just I know will wreck me every time and get my heart every time and leave me weeping. and. So for me, I think the Berkeley audition is the one that I, that matters the most. That Berkeley audition scene is is great. Like it pulls the whole movie together for sure. I feel you there, Patton. I was actually curious as I was watching the movie why she didn't start signing during the school concert. And I was like, ah, that'd be like like she, you know, like that would engage her family and they'd like all come together. It'd be really nice. And then she did it during the audition. And I was like, oh, this is thank you for saving that filmmakers. This is a wonderful, beautiful moment. Um, I think the most meaningful scene to me was the scene where she doesn't go on the boat and she basically goes on a date with that guy because it's what she needs. And it's sort of what the whole movie has been pointing towards of she she needs to find her own voice, step out and live her own life and have that kind of independence and have that strength and independence. And so she finally does it. She goes swimming. She like breaks away from the guilt of feeling like she always has to be with her family. And then the worst thing possible happens during all that, which is her family gets basically arrested and gets their business shut down because she's not there. So the kind of the sort of Democles, it's being hung over her head. The whole film is like, if you're not here for us all the time, something terrible is going to happen. And she finally says, like, I'm not going to feel that like I'm going to step out from under that. And then it does happen. And to me, I thought that was like such a just like poignant way that they showed that. And you you went through that as the audience of watching this happen while you're watching her have the thing she's needed the whole movie, which is freedom. And she's falling in love and she's being a young teenage girl. Right. And she's able to do that and not have to be a grown up adult in the family business and watching that simultaneously to intercutting with the consequence of the thing she needs and not knowing what was the right decision, right? She absolutely should have done what she did, but it also was really bad. I feel like that level of tension that the movie kept with those kind of stakes was what made it so enthralling because the right decision wasn't necessarily obvious all the time. Yeah, man, I I think that's what's really good is like you get what she's doing, but then you get, oh, this is going to cost the family as well. And I think that scene was really powerful. But for me, the scene that like, took it over the top where I was like it went from being a good movie to something that was like elevated and I was like oh I think this is great is the concert scene where they're all going and the family's at the concert and all of a sudden like the dad looks down and he's looking at his buttons on his shirt and he's like oh are my are my buttons off which is something I would do in my daughter's concert and then he and his (laughs) wife get like totally caught up in the buttons of his shirt and then she starts asking about spaghetti and they're like a little checked out of the concert and you kind of feel like man, this is her, she's rocking it up there, and everyone else is saying how good it is. But then all of a sudden there's this moment where it cuts back to behind their heads, and then all the audio drops out. And you experience it in the way that they experience it, which is you don't get to hear anything. You don't get to hear what she's doing. You just see this girl in red kind of bopping back and forth, and that's it. That's all you get to see and experience. And you kind of feel their perspective of like, oh, wow, this is distant. And this is their daughter who is being loved and adored by this room. And they can't quite fully grasp what she's doing. They know it in theory, but they can't fully grasp it. And that like tension of the of that is so powerful to me. And then later on, what it pays it off is he goes to the truck and he says, hey, I want you to sing. And he actually like puts his hand on her vocal cords and he starts to sing. And I'm like a man of steel. I do not cry in movies. But that's the moment that I'm like, oh, my goodness, dude. Like, I can't even handle it. Of just that intimacy of like, okay, the world got to experience what you're good at. But I need to experience it in my own way. And when he has that moment with his daughter, it's freaking gold power. It's incredible. Absolutely. And his journey in the movie is about letting it go. 
and yeah. he has good economic reasons not to let her go, and then he has good father reasons not to let her go. Um, and in that scene, he realizes he has to, and it yeah. enables him to say goodbye, um, you know, uh, when he needs to. And yes, I totally agree. The other thing about that's really important. I mean, you mentioned the sound dropping out in that in that choir performance. I just think we can't say enough about that. The sound drops out for an entire minute. I timed it the other day when I was rewatching it just to see quite how long it was. It felt like a, at least 30 seconds to me, but it was a full minute without sound, wow. which I think pretty daring choice, you know, artistically. And it made me reflect about how there are really two kinds of scenes in Coda. There are hearing world scenes and there are deaf world scenes. Mm. And they're really different, I think, throughout the movie. If you watch it again, you know, I think something like 25% of this movie's script is in American Sign Language. It's in ASL. And usually... I think, in it's, I think it's more than that. I think it's closer to 40%. Oh, wow. See, that's amazing to me. I think usually when you have deaf people signing on camera, there's a translator there to sort of like, you know, to, to translate it for the hearing audience. But in this movie... You don't get that. Right. It's almost like R2-D2, like someone talks and they're like, I know that. Therefore, like, it's totally cheesy. It's not how it happens in real life. That's right. But in this movie, they put, they use captions uh, for those scenes instead of having someone talk to the audience. Um, and, and because of that, during those scenes of deaf people talking to each other, you hear things that you don't normally hear. You hear background noises. You hear creaks and wind and crickets and a boat engine roaring and especially like hands slapping while people are using sign language or even grunts of voice. Yes. Grunts of voice and all that stuff becomes really like prominent as you settle into the kind of auditory world of the movie. And then the apex of it is what you talked about that scene where the sound drops out completely at the car performance. And I remember watching this for the first time with my family. And when the sound dropped off, I was like, it took me a few seconds to register, but I'm like, I'm sitting here in complete silence with my family and all of us are transfixed and no one's like fidgeting or checking their phones. It's just total silence in the movie and no one's bored. And I think that's a, you know, that's a real achievement as a filmmaker. Well, and they had been setting up this performance, the whole movie of like, oh, they've been practicing the song. They're working on it. He's playing the piano. There's like the epic montage. And so we're like, oh, now we're going to finally get the moment. And we never get to hear her sing that song. Like we never really get that moment because the family doesn't get that moment. And I think that's such a, that's the type of decisions for me that worked that made it more than just sentimental. It's like, oh, we're doing something smart. We're telling a story in a way to make you think about something rather than just feel something. For sure. Okay, so now that we just loved on the movie, uh, any least meaningful scenes? Anything that like, okay, this didn't work for me, man. This, this was not a meaningful scene. So I got to talk about the voice teacher. Yes, please. I thought... And I, I try not to be overly mean on this podcast, but I thought by far that character was the weakest point of the movie to the point where almost every scene he was in, I felt made the movie worse. And he had such an important role to play in the movie, which is helping Ruby find her, her voice. But I feel like the way both that character was written and even the way that he was performed made that character into like a stereotype and not a good teacher at all. Um, basically, every one of the scenes that he's with her amounts to him just telling her to be louder, which is one, not how you teach someone how to sing at all. Now, I'm a little bit probably too close to this as my wife, she's an actress and voice teacher and teaches children about that age. Now, actual voice lessons would have been not a great movie. But even in the scene where he's trying to where they have the conversation where she says, like, I'm afraid to make an ugly sound because I used to be bullied for that. I felt like that was the closest we got to a meaningful scene, but it still felt silly to me. It didn't feel like we really went there and watched her emotionally break through anything because it didn't feel like that character was emotionally there with her in the same way that like a Robin Williams would be in a Goodwill Hunting or a movie like that where you have a antagonistic mentor like really pushing on the character he never got there for me and I always felt like he just came across as silly and so I was really left wanting in almost all of those scenes I uh, love that take he's not like a Mr. Miyagi or like an all-time mentor that I'm like putting on my list uh, nor is nor did he take me out of it but again like I'm not a singer like one of my good good friends is a drummer and I was like you've got to go watch Whiplash it is the greatest movie ever and I came back and he's like, what do you think? And he's like, 
that's not how drumming works. And he just went on and on. And I was like, you missed the point. You missed the point. And so <laughs> that's probably how I feel about this, which is like, uh, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying, but I think that's an interesting critique. I mean, I I think it was I think it was that of him not like one being a weird music teacher in how he was teaching, but also I never felt like he was actually emotionally connected with her. He never like broke that pale into which he was connected with what she needed. I agree. We don't really see that. And Bernardo was definitely the weakest part of the movie the first time I saw it. Maybe the first two times I saw it. I've come to accept him on the movie's terms. I've realized like. <laughs> Maybe I'm just like all in on this movie, but like I, you know, one thing is I just read a story about this guy and he's, you know, one of Mexico's most famous actors. And I think, you know, a lot of Mexican cement larger than life, what might feel overcooked to us is like just, you know, normal. And, um, and I, I work closely with a, a friend who is from Mexico. And to be honest, he reminds me of her. And this is just her, like her with her volume turned down. Like that's basically how she acts. And so I just think it's a cultural difference on the one hand. And, um, and like I said before, I think I have come to accept him on the movie's terms and just kind of embrace him. Um, but it did feel a little false or just over, overdone to me. Um, the first, yeah, the first couple of times I saw it. And he, I do think he sort of takes you out of the story a little bit because he's so much. Yeah. And I think like so many of the other characters, I mean, it feels almost like, oh, these are like just raw people on a fishing boat, just kind of like smoking and talking about their business and whatever else. And then he's like, music is the thing, you know, and he just kind of comes out so big. And it's just like, hey, man, are you in a different movie? Like, like maybe maybe there's an after school special you should be on somewhere like uh, it's a little bit of a caricature. Like he always has like a scarf. I almost expected him to have like a beret in like a scene like it's just it's really, really far forward. Patton, what about you? Least meaningful scene? Uh, I think sex in the bar office was probably the thing that I rolled my eyes at the most the, uh, the first time I saw it. Her best friend and her brother's relationship with the best friend um, and just how quickly, and I guess they established that they would quickly move to sex because that's, <laughs> that's that girl. Like she just is pursuing people. Um, so I guess it's fitting. They've kind of planted seeds for that. But it felt, I don't know, it felt like a, a little bit over the top to me as well for them to enter into that relationship and for us to spend that much time on it. Um, however, again, I will say on rewatches, like one thing that happens um, as a preamble to that, to them going into the, the bar office is that they're communicating with text messages. And they're kind of like overcoming, you know, a, a communication barrier and kind of on the fly. Figuring, okay, we can, if we're attracted to each other, actually, we can figure out a way to talk. And then also, I think she plays an important role because they're hooked up and together. Once they do go to the choir performance, she plays an important role in letting the family know that Ruby's actually a really good singer, right? Like she lets she acknowledges right. that she's really good, and they don't know if she's good or not. And so she's able to inform them of that, and they have a bit of a relationship with her there to trust her, kind of take in that moment. Um, but still, nonetheless, when that first happened, the first time I was watching it, I was like, this, I don't think this works. One of the things with her character, I was thinking about her specifically, Rob, when you were talking about how, like, all the characters feel real. I was thinking about how, like, so many of these characters sit in this middle ground of being a little bit off, but also being, like, heroes in their own right. I feel like when we meet her, she's, like, the kind of like the trashy best friend that's just trying to hook up with as many people as possible. So when she goes after the brother, it's like, oh, she's going to be this character, right? Like in quotes, right? Like she's she's going to be the trashy best friend character who's either just here for a laugh or is going to make terrible decisions and be a cautionary tale. But she doesn't really do either of those things. And what she ends up being is like what you said, Patton, is not, not only the, the bridge for the family, but I think she proves the brother's point of like, we don't need Ruby here all the time. Like, I can do this. I can make it in the real world on my own terms. And yeah, sometimes I'm going to get into a bar fight when I don't need to. Right. Like there will still be be struggles. But like, I just got a girlfriend who can hear and she likes me and like I figured it out. Whereas the parents seem to be sometimes self-isolating and the brother's arc is to say, like, we don't have to do that. And I think the relationship with that girl was sort of the first step in that. And they did it in sort of a fun, playful way, which, yeah, included sex in the bar office. 
Yeah, I, I want Sex in the Bar Office in my dark, gritty movies, but not my happy family movies. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> Noted. Um, okay, so I've got to go on a little bit of a tangent here, which is to say my wife does not like CODA, and it's not because she's ever seen it, because she's only seen, like, pieces. But what really upsets her is this is a remake of a French film called... La Famille Belair. I'm, I totally botched that. Sorry, Sarah. But it's a French film that was beloved, won a bunch of awards, did really well. And now that film has kind of been like exiled. Like you can't find it streaming anywhere. You can't rent it on Amazon. If you buy the DVD, it's remember DVDs and they have codes <laughs> from different regions. This you can you have to have like a DVD player from Canada to even like watch this film. So this has totally been like exiled like hidden like i think apple tv is trying to like wipe this movie off the planet uh so we don't know it's a remake at all and so to me that is a little bit like i wouldn't say problematic but just something that i want to flag that's like hey this was a remake of a film which you know happens um i actually have a list of other like remakes like the departed uh, which also won best picture is a remake the birdcage even some like it hot I found True Lies, the James Cameron film, is a remake, uh, The Ring, and so certainly these movies, like, get remade, and this is one of them that was a complete remake, um, but again, my wife was just sort of like, this is like a beloved French film that has just been, like, lost, and we don't even talk about that, and it's just like, oh, we can remake it in English even better, and so that's kind of upsetting to her. Well, I'm sorry for Sarah. That's tough. I don't know how beloved it is. Like, really, if it's totally hard to find and watch, how beloved is it is a question that I would have for lovers of that movie. And also, I want, I want to ask Sarah if she's ever seen a show called The Office, which I'm going to assume she loves and is also a remake. Well, and the other big problem with the French version is it was the actors in that film were not deaf. And so that's the big criticism of that film is that all the actors were actors who were hearing actors, um, but weren't deaf. And this was like an all deaf cast or all, not an all deaf cast, but all the characters who were playing deaf people were deaf in real life. And that was pretty significant in this story. And so that's part of the like meaning behind it and what's interesting. But um, I agree. I, I actually think the American office is better than the British office. Um, don't take my film nerd card from for saying that. <laughs> you can keep it. Okay. Next question is this. Who's the most meaningful character? I mean, it's tough uh, not to say Ruby. And Ruby's the center of the story. Obviously, the whole movie is about her. It's called Coda, which is, you know, child of deaf parents or child of deaf uh, adults. And so she is, you know, she's everything to this movie. But I'm going to, we haven't talked about Troy, her fa- uh, the dad. We haven't talked about the, the actor's name is Troy. The dad is named Frank in the movie. He wins Best Supporting Actor for this role. I think the only male deaf actor ever to be nominated uh, for an Oscar and he won um, and gave, gave a great acceptance speech um, that might have been overshadowed by a certain slap as well. In any event, he is also an emotional center of this movie. I watched this movie with my family, I think the weekend after we dropped off my oldest daughter to go to college. And I was wrecked by the process of dropping off my daughter to go to college and watching her. I took her to Austin. She got on an airplane with her mom. I sat there and like waved through security for like, you know, 45 minutes. And uh, I was still in the processing. And then I actually called Rob Stinnett and said, hey, can you meet me for lunch? I'm grieving, having dropped my daughter off for college. And I need to talk to somebody. And Rob was grateful, was gracious enough to meet me. So I was, in the, I was in the mix of all those emotions. I had no idea what CODA was really about. I just had been recommended to watch it. And we sit down to watch it. And it becomes this movie that we've just discussed. But it's also a movie about a father saying goodbye to his daughter as she goes off to college. And in that last scene, uh, or the last, the goodbye scene, we have Frank with a Boston Red Sox hat on, of which I wear, you know, many, many days, big gray beard, which I don't have right now, but I often do have a big gray beard. And I'm not a fisherman. But anyway, I related to this guy in so many ways and to what he was going through. And man, again, I rewatched it this weekend and I cried for 10 minutes after the credits were over just because of that scene is so powerful. And his performance is so good. He steals every scene that he's in. And um, he's funny and he's uh, heartrending. 
Um, he just gives an incredible performance. And in that scene in particular, and of course he mouths, he says out loud, go to her, which I think has been a little bit controversial that like hearing people need this emotional moment of him actually saying the word. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that, but it's very powerful in the moment um, when he does that. So I, you know, Frank is definitely um, very close to being the most meaningful character in this movie for me. He's what elevates the movie. I think everyone is good in this movie and he's great. He's like, it's just one of those performances. Like Andrew, you mentioned like Robin Williams and Goodwill hunting. And that's like, that's a fine movie, but with anyone but Robin Williams, I don't know if we're talking about it 20 years later. And I feel like he gives that type of performance where it's like every single time he's on screen, it is just electric. He's so funny. He's so real. He, I know we've talked about this before, but he does feel like a real human being. Like, okay, I, I'd walk into a bar and talk to that guy and believe it. I'd see him, you know, and just really connect with him. And so I think his performance is so powerful. And I agree about his acceptance speech, which was I th- I was preparing when we did the, our recap podcast about the Oscars. I was like, OK, we're going to talk about this acceptance speech. This is the moment from the show. This is what we're going to remember forever. And it was so incredible. In fact, like even his translator, who I sounded a lot like Topher Grace. I don't know if you noticed that, but like, I was like, I was like, did Topher Grace get a job doing ASL translation? And it, even the translator is getting like misty eyed as he's doing the like acceptance speech. And it was just absolutely electric. And so I agree. His performance was um, absolutely incredible. Can I talk about one more character, which is the brother who I actually think for me is my most meaningful character. Um, sure. Just because he's so important to the film because he has that scene with his sister, with Ruby, and he says, um, we don't need you. We were fine before you were ever here. And she's like, no, I have to do the one translating. Like, you guys can't do it. And he's like, you know what? You're afraid we'll look stupid, but let them figure out how to deal with us. Our family was fine before you were born. And that whole interaction with her, I think, is really, really important. Where he's like, okay, she's always my little sister. She's always the savior. And if you have a sibling and you have that sibling who, like, is the beloved one, you know what he feels. But then there's that extra feeling of, like, okay, I'm the deaf one and she's who can hear. And just that, like, chasm there. And so I think he's the only one who can speak to the tension. And again, it's what steers it away from sentimentality, not like she's the hero and everything else. But it's actually like, hey, you're upstaging me. You're embarrassing me at certain moments. You're not as awesome as you think you are. And him giving voice to that, I think, is so important. I, I agree. I, I love that scene. That was in, in contention for my most meaningful scene of the movie. Because even after the fight, the movie is, like, steady-handed enough to not, like, end that on a good note. Like, we're nearing the end of the movie. That should be the time where, like, she's having all these moments with her mom and her dad where she's, like, reconnecting and they're building bridges. That's the moment where she builds a bridge with her brother, but the argument ends as an argument. He walks off and says, you need to leave and like leaves it there. And it feels so real the way it just like hangs there with that tension still sitting on their relationship. And the movie doesn't necessarily feel the need to like wrap it up with a hug the way that a more sentimental movie would, you know? Yeah. I want to see Coda 2, which is about um, uh, a fresh catch, I think is the name of the business that they start. That Uh really is starting to have an impact on the family's economic well-being, but also on the community and their ability to survive in what must be a incredibly complex and challenging industry. And we see them starting to thrive, which may be a little sentimental. I was like, I need like a murder or something like that. That just seems too sentimental. I need all of a sudden like someone gets killed on the dock and the family has to decide who it is and they're using sign language and they can only crack the case. It's the brother's idea. Like that stuff is happening and the good. Right. I mean, it wouldn't have happened without him. He's pushing for it. He's stubborn about it. He can't quite. Like he, he can't quite activate what he wants to activate, but it's his kind of original genius that even can conceive of a world where they just sell their fish directly off the boat. Right. And, and it's generational too, right? So his parents are like, Hey, we have to just deal with what happens to us. Yeah. And he's the younger entrepreneur, which is like, no, we, we live in a new world. We can do anything that we want. And, and we actually have a right to be here. We yeah. have a right for, to make money. We have a right for our voice to be heard. Sorry, that sounds cheesy, but you know, I, I think there is that in it. Yeah. 
the last thing with like most meaningful character that I want to chime in with is I feel like so much is has been made and rightfully so of the deaf actors in this cast who give incredible performances. Right. Because we're not used to seeing that in in cinema. Right. But I don't think this movie would work. And we normally steer away from talking about like the main character of the film. But I think Amelia Jones gives a really good performance, and I did not realize how much of this movie was hung on her before I turned it on. All of the marketing, it has, like, all four family members on, like, every poster, and she's, like, kind of off to the side. It's not really billed as a story fully centered on one girl, and this is a movie about one person and how she interacts with her family. And the family is really meaningful impact characters, but, like, this whole movie hangs on her shoulders the only really big thing she's done before this is like a netflix series it's like a cute little family series where they have like magical powers in a home um and she's fine in that but i think she does a really big fan of it did you see every episode and like (laughs) (laughs) i'm like amazed you've watched it (laughs) i i mean i have like season two got a little weak but you know season (laughs) one was great (laughs) yeah it's called lock and key it's a cute little family show (laughs) mostly for kids i don't have kids but i have seen every episode and she's fine in it she's okay but she's so much better in this than any acting i think she's done before and i think like she's getting overshadowed in the in the conversation because of how cool it is of what troy katzer and his performance but i think she like really is the anchor of this film and isn't being talked about enough i think she does a remarkably good job and her vocal performance is amazing in this movie like when they're on the boat and she's singing motown songs until you know uh the berkeley audition um it's she just crushes everything she sings okay so here it is we are now landing on the final argument which is what is this movie trying to say we may have covered this earlier, but this is it. This is your final argument to say, what is Coda trying to tell us? I want to start with you, Rob. What do you think this movie is trying to say? I think this movie is about what it feels like to have someone in your life who is special to you. And then you realize like, oh, I have to let them go and like let the world have them. And I think that's what's at the core of this movie is like mm-hmm. um, we have certain things where it's like, my life would be better if they were closer to me. And especially as a parent, this is like the key struggle, which is like, my life would actually be better if they were closer to me. Like in some ways, it's just like, oh, it's nice to have them. In Coda, there's like a real practical need of what it is. But every parent feels that tension. None of my kids have left home yet. So I don't know what I'll feel like, but I can feel that tension. But even if you've had like, I just had a neighbor move away and like I knew they were moving away to a better house, but I felt kind of selfish. I felt like, I wish they were close to us. I wish they were nearby, but I knew it would be better for them to go. And so this movie's about an emotional journey of what it means to have someone who's close to you and you have to let them go and you have to have the emotional intelligence to say, hey, even though I wish they were here, I know it's better for them to go. And because I love them, I'm letting them go. And I think that's what this movie's trying to say. I would say that I, I think this movie is, this is maybe a little uh, a little meta, but I think this is a movie about how the hearing world needs to adjust to deaf people and make room for deaf people. That's one of the central tensions between, you know, Ruby and her family. How much do I need to adjust? How much does the world around us need to adjust to us? How much do we need to adapt? Um, as we mentioned before, I think Andrew, you said that 40 something percent or 40% of the dialogue in this movie takes place in ASL. It's a bilingual film, you know, just like say Roma, I guess Roma was maybe a trilingual film, but in any event, it's a bilingual movie and it doesn't make apologies for that. It's very straightforward about that. Apparently in theaters, it plays with the captions on the whole entire time in service to, you know, uh, a a non-hearing audience. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, as I said before, there's like, you know, a real difference between the two kinds of scenes, the hearing world scenes, the deaf world scenes. They clearly thought a lot about how to pull all that off uh, from a production standpoint. And so at bottom, and I know this movie has had, has had and is having a kind of complex reception um, in the deaf community, kind of like same way that um, The Sound of Metal did a few years ago. Um, but nonetheless, I think that what this movie is trying to say is that the hearing, the wor- the hearing world needs to make room and adjust, just like her uh, Ruby's brother says, we can adjust to them. Uh, we, you know, those a-holes can figure it out. Uh, I think that's what that movie's, this movie is asking us to do. Patton, it's takes like that, which is why we wanted to have you on the podcast to set us straight <laughs> and say what it's really about. So well said. Well said, Patton. I think we were talking about that scene with the concert earlier where everything goes goes silent. And to me, that was 
a moment that really kicked in for me of what you just said, Patton, about really making room for someone else's experience. And that's what I was experiencing in that scene was for most of the scene, I had been experiencing it from my point of view. And I think largely from like Ruby's point of view, which is like my family isn't paying attention. Right. They're like looking all around. They're not looking at me. Right. Like I was I was like watching. Like, why aren't you like watching your daughter? Like, this is just an hour. I know you can't hear it, but like pay attention. And then when it cuts to them and you see them looking around, what's actually happening is like the dad is watching other people experience it and is getting the best experience he can by witnessing other people who can hear react to her. And he's absorbing through other people's reactions. And in order to do that, he has to put his attention other places. And so that kind of moment where you have empathy, which is what movies do so well, is they put you in someone else's shoes and say, hey, live someone else's experience for a second and have empathy for that. And I, I think I walked away from this movie being like, have a new version of empathy for people that live a completely different life ex- experience and remember that like what can be perceived as rude or inconvenient is like, hey, they have a different story from you. Like, don't assume that it's what you think it is at face value. I love that, Andrew. I think that's what stories can do is mm-hmm. build that sort of empathy. And I do think like, even though I've seen many stories about deaf characters and um, what it means, um, this movie felt fresh and what, for me, it was eye-opening, and I think it winning Best Picture and so many people seeing it, I do hope it builds empathy in a way that you guys are talking about. Uh, okay, we have one final category, which is, um, this is sort of like, we have a place in Austin, a bookstore called Book People, and you walk into the shelves, and there's kind of like, hey, if you liked, you know, The Shining, you might also like, and it gives different books. And so, like, I want to do the, our version of that, which is like, if you liked Coda, you might also like Blank. And so, fellas, what are your blanks of what other people might also like. I've got a like a Rob Stinnett top five list at least. I'm, I may maybe longer. I love uh, it. I'm not going to go answer with just one though. Um, so first, Sing Street. Sing Street, I think actually has uh, the same actor, right? The guy who plays the boyfriend in this movie, not the oh yeah, not the yeah Ruby boyfriend. It's, it's also Kevin Sing Street. So it's about music. It's about family. It's a coming of age movie. Um, so that's one. The Sound of Metal is probably the most obvious connection, which is a, a movie that made a lot of noise, no pun intended, a few years ago. Uh, <laughs> I really did not mean about a rude joke, but um, uh, about uh, a drummer who loses his hearing. And I know it was really controversial because of its take on, you know, uh, implants. But in any event, that seems relevant. Little Miss Sunshine, which is also a movie about a really unique family that tends to leave audiences ridiculous. Great choice. Happy. Um, and so I just think it gives similar feelings. It also put me in mind of a movie that I love, and then I think Rob does too, called The Descendants. Um, yes. It was about a guy reconnecting with his daughters. And this is a movie that has really tender emotion that is really well-earned. Um, but, you know, no one ever accuses The Descendants of being sentimental. But in a different movie, those emotions could be achieved that way. Last one, number five, maybe I'm at six, I don't know, is Leave No Trace, which I think is super underseen. I don't know if either oh, of that's you have seen it. I love that movie. A great movie from 2018 with Ben Foster and Thomas and McKenzie, and it's about a father and daughter living in isolation in Oregon. He's suffering from PTSD, and she is just a teenager being with her dad, and this is just her dad and what he knows, but it becomes a really kind of poignant and powerful movie about uh, a father and a daughter. So... Um, that's my list. If, if you like Coda, watch these. You know, I love lists, and that's an awesome list. Um, that's a great list. <laughs> so many of those movies, like, I love. Um, Sound of Metal was also nominated for Best Picture, I believe. Okay. And so, Andrew, what's on your list? You got any? Yeah, mine is, I just I just have one, um, but I would say um, another Best Picture nominee from this year, Belfast. It's also an intimate story about a family trying to figure out what the next step of their life is. And it's um, wonderful and heartfelt and all the emotion is earned uh, with the stakes being just very central to one community, one family. Um, It's uh, a really um, romantic watch, uh, but not not sentimental. Beautiful. Good choice. Um, Mine is The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is a film. It's a French film and it's a story about a stroke, which may feel like an odd choice. Um, but what I love about this movie is similar to Coda and that scene where you really get immersed into what they're feeling. This is a movie that you really, it, 
tells from the perspective of this guy who has a stroke. He has something called locked-in syndrome, which is a rarer condition, which means you have a stroke and you're paralyzed, but your mind is super sharp and can tell everything that's happening. And you get to see the world from his perspective, and it's this haunting kind of amazing story that unfolds in that way. So Diving Bell and Butterfly, if you haven't seen it, um, it's definitely worth a watch. I will check that out. I have not seen that one. Me either. All right. I strongly recommend it. And that is it, fellas. That's the podcast today. Patton, great job. Oh, so good to have you, man. Thanks, y'all. This is really fun. Um, thanks for inviting me and talking about good movies in good ways. Well, that is it for the, today's episode of The Meaning of the Movie. Remember, as always, like, subscribe, tell your friends and family about this podcast. And until next time, we will see you on The Meaning of the Movie.